Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working Radio Show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This particular sermon is entitled, Falsehood and the Kingdom. In Jesus' day, Israel had become a culture of falsehood wrapped up in religious packaging. The falsehood was concealed behind a complex theology of oath-taking, in which the bindingness of the oath depended on the things sworn on, heaven, the earth, Jerusalem, one's own head. This led to a culture in which a word and a handshake were not good enough. You needed an oath and not just any oath, but just the right oath. And of course, you needed the scribes and Pharisees to advise you on what was the right oath, for that was always changing. Now, Jesus wants to take a wrecking ball to this hypocrisy. He does so by reintroducing his disciples to what God really intended in the law. And he quotes the very passage the scribes and Pharisees were perverting, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, where God said, You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, and you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. Supposedly, the scribes and Pharisees, in their theology of oath-taking, were teaching the people how to avoid swearing falsely in the Lord's name. In reality, they were schooling the people on how to deal falsely and lie to one another. What the scribes and Pharisees had lost was what the last part of Leviticus 19.12 talks about, and that is God's name, which in the Bible is a way of referring to God's presence. Because God is everywhere and owns everything, there is nothing one can swear on without effectively invoking the name of God. And because God has especially manifested His presence in the midst of His people, they were to bear His name truthfully, which is to say, they were to be the people of the truth, who spoke truth, and who dealt truthfully with one another. This is a timely message for us today, for our culture is rapidly becoming a culture of falsehood, where distrust is escalating and relationships are eroding. As God's people... We are where God manifests His name and His presence today. Thus, the church is supposed to be where people can come to experience the truth incarnationally. But first, we ourselves must become children of truth through and through, which is easier said than done. Becoming children of truth and all that that means will present a challenge to each one of us. I hope this message will challenge and encourage you regarding the need of our day, not only in our culture, but in our churches. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. This morning, as we continue our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew, we come to that portion of the Sermon on the Mount that concerns falsehood. And that is Matthew chapter 5. Verses 33 through 37, Matthew 5, 33 through 37. So let's give attention to the word of God. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, 
nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Let us pray. Great God and Father, we give you thanks for your word that you've given to all your children in every generation. And we pray that by the Spirit you would bring it to us today, that we may be built up and encouraged and made strong, that we might live for your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've seen with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, uh, in Jesus, God has come near and He is bringing the law near for the promise of the new covenant is that God will write His law on the hearts of His people. And Jesus is beginning the fulfillment of that prophecy by bringing the law near, uh, chiseling off all of the accretions that the scribes and the Pharisees had placed upon it, which were obscuring God's intentions and desire for His people. And we've seen that Jesus here is not giving a theological lecture. He's not speaking to seminary students. He's speaking to normal people. He's speaking to everyday members of God's covenant community, those who name the name of God, who believe in God, and who now are desiring to be disciples of Jesus the Messiah. In other words, Jesus is speaking everyday language to everyday people just like us. In fact, by the Spirit, this is Jesus' sermon to His people in all ages. And so we want to hear it at this level. Jesus, in speaking first about murder, then speaking about adultery, and now speaking about falsehood, is not speaking to us theory. He's speaking to us about life. And He's speaking to us about what we need to do and how we need to change to truly live the life of God, to truly be His disciples. And we've noticed a pattern so far as Jesus talked about uh, murder and then adultery. And we're going to see the same pattern today as he talks about falsehood. And that is uh, Jesus has identified uh, a particular fruit of an evil tree. He talks about murder or he talks about adultery. And he talks about them as being the fruit of a tree, as it were. In other words, they're the, they're the final end product of an evil process that doesn't start on the outside, it starts on the inside with the heart, and then it builds up until it produces the final fruit. But when God names the final fruit, and when He says, you shall not commit murder, or when He says, you shall not commit adultery, He's not just after the fruit, He's after the whole tree which produced the fruit. In other words, the fruit is like a face. It identifies the tree. And Jesus speaks this way uh, as he teaches in the Gospels. He says, you know a tree by the fruit, just like we know a person by the face. Right. If you have a witness in a criminal case who is describing uh, the face of uh, the perpetrator, they're not identifying just the faith. They're identifying the whole criminal. But the face is that by which we really identify one another. And so this is the way that God identifies the whole evil tree that ends up in murder or the whole evil tree, roots and all, that ends up in adultery. And we're going to see the same pattern uh, here today. By prohibiting the fruit, God is prohibiting the whole evil plant, roots and all. 
The other pattern we've seen with Jesus so far is that as he speaks to something such as murder or such as adultery, we see him collating the commandments or blending the commandments together. We saw that when he talked about adultery, he actually took um, uh, the uh, seventh commandment dealing with, Uh, prohibiting adultery, and he combined it with the Tenth Commandment uh, forbidding um, coveting. And he says, so that he who covets or lusts after uh, his neighbor's wife in his heart has already committed adultery. And he shows how the commandments are not like individual panes of glass, but they're like a uh, a collage that forms together a mural uh, of glass. And so, as James says, if you if you break one, you've broken all. And so he combines them together. And so we're going to see him do the same thing now as he is talking about the issue of falsehood. So Jesus, again, calls to mind what these people have heard and what they have heard has largely come to them uh, through the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he's calling to mind not just God's word, which has been quoted. He's calling to mind what they have been taught. In other words, the way that God's word has been contextualized, the way that God's word has been preached and taught to them by the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, here Jesus is quoting Leviticus chapter 19, verses 11 to 12. And let me just say that Leviticus chapter 19 is one of the most remarkable uh, passages of all Scripture. It is, it is a chapter which starts out with God saying, You shall be holy as I am holy. Now, you recognize that because it's quoted several times in the New Testament and is applied to New Testament Christians. You shall be holy uh, for I am holy. Um, and the chapter ends with, You shall do all of these statutes, you shall do all of these commandments, For I am the Lord. So the whole chapter is grounded in the being of God himself. He is saying, you should be like me because you are my children. I am holy. You should be holy. And now I'm going to tell you what that means, what that looks like in real life. And right in the middle of this chapter comes the second great commandment, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right in the middle of the chapter. So, loving our neighbor as ourselves, why do we do that? Because that's who God is. That's who He is, and that's how He is. That's who we are to be. That's how we are to be. And throughout this chapter, you have all kinds of interesting uh, commands. You have commands like, you shall rise up before the aged, and you shall honor an old man. You have commands like, you shall not... Uh, mock the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind. You have all kinds of what appear to be eclectic, uh, strange commands that are together, but they're really not eclectic. They're all joined together, uh, revealing to us who God is, how He is, and therefore who we are to be and how we are to be. And you find throughout the whole chapter this kind of collating of the Ten Commandments, or this blending of the Ten Commandments uh, together. And so Jesus is quoting here 
two of the verses which uh, actually form a single sentence in Leviticus chapter 19. It's Leviticus 19, 11 or 12. And this is what it says. Now, notice how Jesus is going to collate and blend uh, multiple commandments here. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, and you shall not swear by my name falsely. Nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So this command to not swear in God's name falsely is actually part of several commands that are blended by God together. He has combined it with, you shall not steal. He has combined it with, you shall not lie to one another. And perhaps the central theme here is the little phrase, you shall not deal falsely. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not deal falsely with God by swearing uh, an oath to God. Jesus points this out. He says, you should not swear an oath to God and then not perform it. Now you're dealing with God falsely. But it also extends to one another because people could take uh, an oath before God regarding something that they're going to do for God's uh, temple, for his people, uh, for one another. You even have examples in the New Testament of people taking oaths to God um, to do very wicked things, thinking that they were serving him. For example, in the book of Acts, you have a number of Jews taking an oath that they would neither eat nor drink until they had murdered Paul. Okay, that's taking an oath before God. They think they're serving God. They're not serving God, of course. But anyway, so you have this idea of falsehood toward God. That's prohibited. Falsehood before God with relation to other people. And then you have stealing being portrayed as a way of dealing falsely. Stealing is a falsehood. Stealing is a way of dealing falsely with one another. Sometimes we may steal uh, simply by stealth, when somebody is not looking, shoplifting, breaking into a house, taking something that doesn't belong to us. That has an inherent falsehood to it. But sometimes we steal in, in front of somebody's face by lying to them, uh, by saying to them one, we, some form of fraud, in other words. That's obviously a falsehood that results in a theft. Another interesting command that's in Leviticus 19 that involves this falsehood or stealing is having diverse weights and measures. That's one of the commands there, that you shall not have differing weights and measures. That was in, in the, in the uh, ancient culture when they paid for things by silver and gold. Um, they would have a scale which would weigh out the weight of silver and gold so that people know that they have an honest currency with which that they are dealing with one another. And if you threw off the weights of the measures, you could effectively steal from other people through this falsehood. You could deal with them falsely uh, by changing, in effect, the currency. So um, now when it gets into false currencies and manipulating currency and therefore stealing, just don't get me started, okay? Because it is one of the big issues in our culture. Ty this morning prayed for what's going on in our culture uh, politically, and one of the big things that's going on in our culture, and I'm not trying to get off into particular economic theory, but one of the big things that goes on in our culture is the manipulation of currency one way or another, up or down. 
the big situation now, uh, everybody is crying out about gas prices and so forth. And you hear all kinds of things being said. You hear it's evil oil companies or it's this or it's that. And you hear uh, all of these things being said. But one of the factors is that our currency is being devalued. And when the currency is devalued, guess what? Prices go up. And so fuel prices go up, food prices go up, and so forth. Of course, our government has nicely removed uh, energy costs and grocery costs, which are some of the main costs for you. Those are not considered in the inflation index. So they're going up like crazy, but inflation is, is not a problem. Okay, so I told you not to get me started. and It's your fault. You got me started. Okay. So the command to not swear by God's name falsely is connected with these commands that have to do with falsehood generally, which involves lying to one another in one way or another and even stealing from one another. And what we see here is that these verses that Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19 involve a collation or a blending together of the third commandment, the Eighth Commandment, and the Ninth Commandment. And we put those in your outline so you can keep them in mind. The Third Commandment is the commandment that says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Eighth Commandment says, you shall not steal. And the Ninth Commandment says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, always remember that by naming the fruit, God's naming the whole tree that produces the fruit. By prohibiting the fruit, he's prohibiting the root that started things on the way to the fruit. So bearing false witness against your neighbor, of course, that's perjury. That's coming into court, taking an oath and lying. The best example in Scripture would be those who perjured themselves at the trial of Jesus, lying against him. But you see, that's the final fruit. That's not all that's being prohibited. Every lesser form of that final fruit is being prohibited. The same thing is true with the command, you shall not steal. And um, these three commands are, in fact, related to the third commandment, which is you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, that's not something that would jump out to us if we simply read the Ten Commandments, but it is, in fact, true. And if we pay attention to how God applies the Ten Commandments, for example, in Leviticus 19, or how Jesus applies them in his ministry, we start seeing the interdependence of the commands that relate to our uh, relationship with God and the commands that relate to our relationship with one another. So to understand how what you shall not steal and you shall not uh, bear false witness uh, against your neighbor, how those relate to you shall uh, not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, we need to understand a little bit about the third commandment. And I want to talk about this for a minute because it is an important foundational and background concept to Jesus's sermon here. So. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The name of the Lord in Scripture basically means the revealed presence of the Lord. The name of God is the revealed presence of God. Now, we know God is everywhere present, of course, as Psalm 139 tells us. But his presence is not everywhere revealed. 
Okay, but where God reveals his presence to be, for example, in the temple in the Old Testament, that is where the name of God is said to dwell. In Psalm 140, it says, Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Now, this is Hebrew parallelism, which means it is stating the same thing twice from slightly different angles. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. In Second Chronicles 20, when King Jehoshaphat play, prays in the temple, he says to God, We stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in this temple. We stand in your presence, for your name is in this temple. So what dwells in the temple? Well, God's revealed presence, that is to say, his name. And so to take God's name in vain means to take his revealed presence in vain. Now, what does in vain mean? In vain in the Bible means lightly or of little consequence. Lightly or of little consequence. Solomon says again and again in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the Hebrew word there literally means vapor or mist. Solomon is saying, vapor of vapors, all is vapor. In other words, vapor or mist, it's something that is barely there when it is there, and it's not there for very long. It's gone in an instant. It's something that you cannot grab. It is something that doesn't really have substance. It's fleeting. It is of little consequence. Now, interestingly, the opposite of vanity in Scripture is glory. The opposite of vanity is glory, because the Hebrew word for glory literally means heaviness. In other words, something that is solid, something that is heavy, something that is of great consequence. And of course, we know in the Bible that all glory belongs to God. God is all glorious, which is to say all weightiness, all heaviness, all real consequence belongs to God. His presence, his name is weighty. It makes a difference. It's not just there. It's not like a mist that you can't touch it and then it evaporates. It's gone. No, his, heaven, his, his presence, his name is weighty. It's not to be taken lightly. I think of um, if you think of something that is of little consequence. Uh, my mom used to make uh, these great chocolate pies. They were really good. And on top of them, she would put this meringue icing, which would be more than an inch thick, really thick. And of course, it's, it, it's nothing to it. It's, it's really good, but it's, uh, it has no weight. So it just takes on the shape of the pie. It just goes right over the top. It doesn't change a thing. Well, try taking about an inch and a half of gold and spreading it over the top of a chocolate pie and see what happens. It's not going to conform to the pie. It's going to sink down to the bottom. It's going to squash it because it is too heavy. And so it's not going to take the shape of the pie. It's going to shape the pie. It, in other words, the heaviness, the weighty things belong on the bottom. It belongs at the foundational level, the level at which things are given shape, the level of, uh, of things that we uh, build on. So the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, forbids taking God's presence. 
as a thing of little consequence. Taking his presence as a thing of little consequence. What we start seeing is that really all the commandments, whether it's you know, not bearing false witness, whether it's not stealing, not murdering, not, uh, not committing adultery, they all deal at the most deep level about things that are going on in our heart and then work their way out. Now, what keeps us from having these wrong things going on in our hearts, let alone coming out our hands? It is the sense of God's presence and the sense that his presence is heavy. It matters. It makes a difference. In other words, God's presence it weighs on us. We don't forget about it. It's not light and fluffy, vaporous. It's heavy. We're reminded of it all the time. We're always conscious of his presence. That's what Psalm 139 is talking about. It's always there and it makes a difference. And you start seeing then how this ties into what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? What is the fear of the Lord? It's this sense, this weighty sense of God's presence all the time. And this weighty sense of God's presence is what causes us then to stop ourselves when we're thinking in a way that is wrong. And we're tempted to say something that's wrong or we're tempted to do something that is wrong. And then we stop. And we back up and we say, I'm not doing that. I'm not saying that. I'm turning away from that. Why? Because there's this weighty sense of God's presence. His presence weighs on us. It affects us and it changes us. And so this really lies behind. There's no way for any people to love neighbor as self, to not murder, to not commit adultery, to not steal to not bear false witness, to not covet in their hearts. There's no way for that to happen apart from a people who, uh, who have the presence of God and, who's, and, who's, and to whom the presence of God weighs on them. There is no way. So when you lose the sense of God's presence and when it stops weighing on a people, then the whole culture starts going downhill and murder, adultery, uh, theft... Lying, covetousness is going to grow. It is inevitable. And so, um, when we start taking God's presence as a thing of little consequence, we're going to begin to deal falsely with one another in various ways, and we end up with a culture of falsehood. A culture of falsehood. Now, a culture of falsehood is a culture of distrust. If you have a culture of falsehood, you can't trust anybody. And guess what? If you can't trust anybody, you cannot have relationships. You can't have personal relationships like a husband-wife relationship, a friendship, and you can't have business relationships. You can't have partnerships, employer-employee, contracts, and so forth. It begins to destroy the whole culture. God describes what a culture of falsehood is like in Jeremiah chapter 9. There, that whole book is when Israel or Judah is, uh, Judea is on the cusp of being sent off into Babylonian captivity because of her unrepentant wickedness. And so God describes this culture of falsehood in these words. Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother. 
Take heed to your neighbor. In other words, you better watch your neighbor. And do not trust any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant. The word is trip up or deal craftily. Every brother is going to deal craftily with every other brother. And every neighbor will walk with slanderers or tail bearers. In their speech, they're crafty, tearing one another down. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me. And so in this people, the people of God, and still instead of dwelling in the midst of God's presence, having his weightiness shape them, they now dwell in the midst of deceit. And through deceit, they refuse to know me. In other words, this people have, in all of their deceit and falsehood, this culture of falsehood, they have deceived themselves. They refuse to know God. They've lost the sense of His presence. And therefore, everything, every single relationship is breaking down. Now, a culture of falsehood is what had come upon Israel again in Jesus' day. And so like the Babylonian captivity, uh, the siege that Nebuchadnezzar brought against Jerusalem, within a single generation, by 70 A.D., Jerusalem again was going to be besieged and destroyed. And this culture of falsehood is going to get worse and worse until God's judgment on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And this culture of falsehood that is taking hold in God's covenant people, is what Jesus is speaking against in our text. And it is what he is calling his disciples out of. This culture of falsehood in the first century Israel was expressed in a complex theology of swearing. Okay, when you take a religious people who begin to move in an irreligious way, they're going to do so religiously. Okay, got that? When a religious people move toward irreligiousness, they're going to do so religiously. In other words, they're going to keep the terminology, they're going to dress it all up in religious terms so that their sin does not appear. And it changes from time to time and from culture to culture. The way that we're tempted toward a culture of falsehood today is going to, it's going to look Differently, which means it's going to take on a different religious cast than it did in first century Israel. But we need to pay attention to what was going on then so that we can do a good job of avoiding the same thing today. In that day, it expressed itself in a complex, perverse and hypocritical theology of swearing And this complex theology of swearing was based on a twisting of Leviticus 19.12, which we've already seen is what Jesus is quoting in verse 33. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Now, in this complex and perverted theology of swearing, the bindingness of an oath depended on what the oath was on with the idea being that as long as you were not actually swearing in the Lord's name, then you could not violate Leviticus 19.12 because Leviticus 19.12 says you shall not swear in the Lord's name falsely, right? 
So, when you're wanting to play fast and loose, you don't swear in God's name. You swear in the name of something else, such as the things that Jesus uh, identifies here. You swear by heaven, or you swear by the earth, or you swear by Jerusalem, or you swear by your own head. You swear by one of these things. And then, when you fail to be true to your word, you justify it saying that you're clean because you have not falsely sworn in the Lord's name. So they had this complex theology of swearing depending on what you were swearing on. How truthful you had to be depended on what you swore on. You, this is what Jesus will talk about later on in Matthew in chapter 23. When he says to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. So if you swear by the temple, it's not, it's not, it's nothing. You're not bound. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you're obliged to perform it. Jesus says, fools and blind, which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And, who, and he goes on, whoever swears by the altar, you say, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, which is greater, the gift of the altar on the altar or the altar that sanctifies the gift? So once you have this kind of thinking holding sway where uh, a person, you go before the judges or you go before the elders and you say this brother or this sister had made a commitment to me and then broke the commitment. And then their defense is, I didn't swear by the altar. I mean, I didn't swear by the gold of the altar. I just swore by the altar. And then the judge or the elders say, well, there you go. It's not a binding oath. You should have been more careful. You should have required a different oath. What happens to society at that point? Are you going to take anybody's word? Are you going to take a handshake? And a yes. No, you're not. You're, you're going to want an oath. And not only are you going to want an oath, you're going to want just the right kind of oath. And you're going to need a lawyer, that is to say a scribe or a Pharisee, to be there to make sure you're getting just the right kind of oath. And you know it's going to change over time, right? Pretty soon, not even swearing by the gold of the altar will be enough. It'll have to be something else. It'll have to be... Uh, more uh, sophisticated than that. So it's going to get more and more complicated. It's going to get more and more hypocritical. It's going to get more and more ridiculous. And notice the hypocrisy because, see, this whole system of swearing claims to be about the truth, right? It's all about the truth. Swearing. It's about truth. It's about honesty. It's about commitments. It's about business contracts. But none of it's about truth. It's all about falsehood. It's a culture of falsehood. So Jesus wants to take a wrecking ball to this whole hypocritical, perverted culture of falsehood. And so he says in verse 34, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your own head. Because you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, it may seem here that Jesus is changing the law by forbidding swearing. It may seem like you say, look, 
Yes, God permitted swearing in the Old Testament, but we tried that and it just doesn't work. So we're going to have to change it now. Uh, But a deeper look indicates that that's not what Jesus is doing at all. After all, Jesus testified under oath at his own trial. Matthew chapter 26. So Jesus takes an oath there. Jesus is identifying these things, swearing by heaven, earth, Jerusalem, one's own head, because again, the Jews were swearing by these things, going back on their oaths, and then using the excuse that they had not sworn falsely in God's name. And thus they were innocent. So Jesus forbids the practice. And he basically points out here two problems with this practice. First, it excuses and promotes falsehood which is from the evil one, he says in verse 37. Second, this is implicit atheism. This is implicit atheism. In other words, this is taking the Lord's name in vain. This is making God's revealed presence, which is here in His temple and is upon His people, it is making it a light thing which is of no consequence. It is implicit atheism. Because Jesus is pointing out there is nothing we can swear by without implicating the name of the God who owns and controls all things. There is nothing in the universe that you can swear by that somehow makes it distant from God and thus detaches it from our obligation to be truthful and honest. Now, this sense of God's presence that we've been talking about and what the third commandment is about, this sense of God's presence, a weighty presence, making a difference in how we live, that is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees were lacking. People who sense God in their midst live like Leviticus chapter 19, what that whole chapter is about. With love your neighbor as yourself, right in the middle. People who don't sense God's presence in their midst, but who are nevertheless religious, live like the scribes and the Pharisees. So Jesus says here in verse 37, Let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. In other words, as Leviticus 19.11 says, you shall not deal falsely or lie to one another. Jesus paraphrases that by saying, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Now, there are special occasions where oaths are appropriate. But in normal day-to-day life, you shouldn't need an oath. You shouldn't need to give one. You shouldn't need to take one or receive one. Let alone should you need an oath with just the right words. For you should be completely honest and trustworthy. And the brothers and sisters you are dealing with should be the same way. Why is this important? Because it images God. It images God Himself. We saw with the commands against murder and adultery that even though they're expressed in negative terms, they're really not denials. They're really affirmations. In other words, they're protecting something that God has created that is very precious. In the case of murder, we're talking about life itself. God is life. He has created life. He has given us life. And you shall not murder is about affirming and protecting life. 
you shall not commit adultery is about protecting relationships, commitments, trust. And the same thing is true about falsehood. Something very precious is being protected. And that is truth. Jesus says that everything that moves away from truth, everything that erodes a culture of truth, is of the evil one. Now, it's an interesting thing that Jesus says there. Jesus talks about the evil one or or the devil or Satan in John chapter 8. And he says that the essence of the devil is that he is a murderer. Okay, there's murder. The essence of the devil is that he is a murderer. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. So in other words, that's how he starts out. Satan murdered the human race. How did he murder the human race? By getting the human race to commit adultery against God. In other words, by getting us to commit spiritual adultery, getting Adam and Eve to break their bond, their covenant union with God through their unbelief and their disobedience. That's how he murdered him, them. So now you have murder and you have adultery. How did Satan get them to commit spiritual adultery, to sever or break their relationship with God? By lying to them. Murder, adultery, and falsehood. Jesus says that the devil is a liar and the father of lies. Satan wants a culture of death. Satan wants a culture of fractured relationships because no one can trust anybody else. And how does he get all of this? By a culture of falsehood. That is where he started in the garden, and that's where he still starts. He starts always with falsehood. Then he moves to fractured relationships. Then he moves to murder. G.K. Chesterton said, A real liar does not tell wanton and unnecessary lies. He tells nice and necessary lies. And we see that this is the way Satan already operates. He doesn't tell some unnecessary and wanton lie in the garden. He tells nice and necessary lies that seem so reasonable. So reasonable. And Chesterton goes on to point out that to tell a nice and necessary lie, you have to involve the truth. You have to use truth. Chesterton said... In one sense, truth alone can be exaggerated. In other words, truth alone can be stretched or twisted because nothing else, he says, nothing else can stand the strain. An outright pure lie is fragile. It's not going to make it. Only truth can can take the strain of twisting it, of stretching it. And this is, what, this is where a culture of falsehood begins. And probably the most succinct statement of the gospel in all of Scripture, the Apostle John in 1 John says this, For this reason the Son of God appeared, that He might destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? 
Why was he incarnate? Why did he become one of us? Why did he go to the cross and die? Why was he buried? Why was he raised again? John said it was to destroy the works of the devil, which means it is to destroy his murdering and to bring life. It is to destroy the the, the adultery, the fractured relationships and to bring uh, proper relationships and to restore all of that. Jesus has to destroy the lives of the devil. He has to destroy the culture of falsehood. He has to bring a culture of truth. This is why Jesus came. And only Jesus, only the power of the cross, only faith in him, only the power of his spirit can break this. You and I do not have the power to overcome the the born tendency right within ourselves to deal falsely with one another at some level. At some level. And thus to fracture relationships. To stand against one another's life. To bear grudges against one another. That's one of the things that Leviticus 19 identifies as standing against the life of your neighbor. Bearing grudges. Being a tailbearer. What is being a tailbearer? I mean, we typically call it gossip. What is it? Gossip is telling the truth falsely. Gossip is telling the truth falsely. It's the truth within the four corners of what is said. But the purpose for telling it is not to build up. It's to put somebody in a negative light. It has a very powerful effect. This, this is where the culture of falsehood starts. It doesn't start with people swearing in God's name. And violating it. It doesn't start with people making business contracts and then going back on them. That's not where it starts. It's where it goes. It starts with things like tailbearing. And we all know how to do it. We all know how to tell the truth falsely. We know how to do that and put somebody in a bad light. And it's effective. Just consider our whole uh, current political situation because right now, the whole Republican nomination uh, process is going on and we're, we're watching how these candidates are doing one another. Everybody, every citizen you talk to says they don't like negative campaigning, right? They don't like all the negativism. They don't like all the attack ads. They don't like this. Why do they keep doing it? Nobody likes it, according to everybody's testimony. Why do they keep doing it? Because it works. And you know how it works. You know, you hear a negative advertisement against somebody. This is tail bearing that's coming to you. You hear it. You don't necessarily believe it. You don't say, oh, I'm taking that to the bank. I know this is true. And now I'm against this person. You don't know what to believe. Right. But how does it affect you? It just makes you back away, doesn't it? It just makes you back away from that candidate because you don't know what to believe. It changes the way you perceive them. And that's what it's intended to do. It changes the way you think about them. The other thing it does is it sets in confirmation bias. This is a scientific term. Confirmation bias. When there's a certain hypothesis or when a certain accusation has been made, now you begin to see the person in a certain grid. 
And you be, you're looking to see if this is true. And confirmation bias makes us take any phenomenon which does not confirm the accusation is regarded as simply being immaterial. It's irrelevant, so it doesn't count. But anything that is not inconsistent with the accusation or anything that's consistent, even though it's not evidence of it, is regarded as being proof of it. That's confirmation bias. It's true in scientific circles and it's true with us. And so these are some of the the ways that we have to look at as God's people today dealing falsely. We see very clearly the culture of falsehood that existed in the first century. But it's different for us. It's no good for us to simply identify their sin. We have to identify our sin. How does the culture of falsehood take root in us as God's people today? Well, we don't have any complex theology of swearing today. We don't do that. But what we do do is we tend, we're tempted to be a people who do, in one way or another, stab one another in the back. And what we're called to be by Jesus is a people on whom God's presence rests in a heavy way. Twice in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you are the temple of God. He speaks to the church as a group. He says, you together are the temple of God. And then he speaks to every individual Christian and he says, you individually are the temple of God. In fact, your body is the temple of God. You are where God's presence dwells. You are where his name dwells. And that is to be a heavy thing. You're where his glory dwells. So you you are where people come to see the presence of God. To see the glory of God. To see the name of God. Where do they come? They come to you. And so when they come in their, our midst, they're to have a weighty sense, a palpable sense that, you know what? That, that there's a big difference between being here and being out in the world because this is a people who do not stab one another in the back. This is a people who have one another's back. They have one another's back. And that's rare. And when I say a people who have one another's back, I'm not talking about like being a member of the mafia where we're required to be accessories to one another's crimes and to cover up evil. I'm not talking about that. Having one another's back biblically means that you seek one another's good. And so if we go tail-bearing, if we go telling the truth falsely in order to diminish a brother or sister in another brother's or sister's eyes, or to indebt somebody to us, or to bring them under our manipulation, all of those are false purposes. They're all forms of dealing falsely. And that's not seeking one another's good. Now, we can only do this, we can only do the impossible by the Spirit of God, and with a sense of God's heavy presence. It doesn't mean we're blind to one another's sin. It doesn't mean that. It means we're eyes open to one another's sin. But it means that in the midst of all this, we remember that God is working with us. God is working with us. God is here. We don't have to take matters into our own hands. 
We don't have to do that. God's in charge here. He's in control here. He's working His purposes. He's bigger than that person. And we need to remember that and have that sense and have one another's backs in that way. That's what a culture of truth produces. And when people come into that, they can sense it immediately. And they know, you know what? You can't find this anywhere else. It's something that testifies to them in an argument that cannot be refuted that God is here. God is here. These people are sinners. They're, they're fallen. They're imperfect. But God is here. God is in their midst. God is changing them. There's life here. There's faithfulness here. There are relationships here. And I want, I want to be part of this. Now, that's what it means when it says taste and see that the Lord is good. How do you taste and see? They come in the midst of God's people. And the whole feel, the whole taste is completely different from anything they have tasted before. We have to remember this precious thing that God is protecting by encouraging in us this culture of truthhood. It is words themselves. Words themselves. Paul Tripp said this, God has unlocked the doors of truth to us using words as His key. The only reason we understand anything is that God has spoken. Words belong to God, but He has lent them to us so that we might know Him and be used by Him. This means that words do not belong to us. Every word we speak must be up to God's standard and according to His design. They should echo the great speaker and reflect His glory. When we lose sight of this, our words lose their only shelter from difficulty. Talk was created by God for His purpose. Our words belong to Him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.